Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Hi friends, I'm Lauren Curry, the founder of Upfront. We're an organisation on a mission to change confidence for 1 million women and non-binary people by 2023. And we do this in three ways. We transform your relationship and habits around confidence, power and visibility through our six-week online course. Each cohort is called a bond. Bond is the collective noun for a group of women and over a thousand women have graduated from a bond from over 20 different countries. We build community, real, genuine, human community, where women learn how to stand up for themselves and each other. We hold each other to account. We celebrate each other and learn together. Our community is Global Bond. We create content that will inspire, challenge and motivate you to be upfront. We are here to change confidence, not women. Upfront Moment is designed to kick your week off with confidence, self-compassion and agency. So last week we talked about resting, pausing. I gave you permission to stop. And this week I am here with the one and only Najla Dales to talk about the fact that you do not have imposter syndrome. We also want to take you on a little tour around the assessment and the framework that we use to measure the impact of the bond. Hi, Angela. Hi, Lauren. Or Lowe's, I like to call you. How are you? Um, <laughs> I'm mostly good, a little hot, a little faint, but I'm so excited to be here to talk about such a core pillar of what we do at Upfront. Yeah, so our amazing producer, Daisy, is helping us create this moment for you from Stockholm and New York. And of course, one of those cities is much noisier. <laughs> than the other and hotter than the other so the sacrifices that Najla has made this morning by closing all her windows to block out the noise turning off our aircon Najla we appreciate you so we've decided to talk about imposter syndrome for our final episode of our very first season of the upfront moment podcast very exciting and we decided to call this episode, You Don't Have Imposter Syndrome. So talk to me. Talk to me, Najla. Why do I not have imposter syndrome? Why do you not have imposter syndrome? Yeah, I, I think that um, something that people may not know is the woman who popularized imposter syndrome, I would say over the last close to decade, was because she's doing work on, you know, black and brown women who felt like they couldn't maybe perform or keep up at, um, in their workplaces. And that's really what repopularized this 
this word and I think we underestimated the effect of systems and how it makes us show up in our selves and our authenticity and our work what makes us feel qualified and as one of my favorites Brene Brown says you know we use words to regulate our emotions And if we're not regulating or using the right words for the emotions, we often can't get to the root problem um, that we need to get to. So it's really important for for any of us to identify what we're actually experiencing because you don't want to treat the wrong thing. I don't want to say, hey, um, feeling faint, let me go run a mile. What I really need is to hydrate and to rest, right? So... It's really important that you all understand we're not using imposter syndrome as a blanket diagnosis for every single person. Um, I think it's a helpful tool, it's a helpful language tool for us to talk about those feelings we have, but not necessarily why we have those feelings. And I think that's part of our conversation today. Yeah, for sure. And there's something so significant about the fact the word is syndrome. I think, you know, there's implications there of a medical diagnosis of Mm -hmm. something that is inherently biological or genetic, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of out of one's hands that I do think is problematic. It's an idea that I guess like all ideas, but this one in particular really does need nuance and space for complexity and I guess yeah. the kind of trend of you know feminism parts of feminism have become much more socially palatable and almost trendy and it means that mm-hmm. these words can be co-opted and often cause more harm than they do good right and you know we know yeah. that many many women who will turn up to our bond committed to you know let's take part in this six-week experience let's do this unlearning let's transform my relationship with confidence so many of them this idea of imposter syndrome is a big part of their story it's a big part of their narrative and that they've either been labeled as that by somebody externally or they've done their own research and came to the conclusion that they that they have this syndrome absolutely and and while you focus you know and kind of lay out what that term syndrome does for us for me i just get stuck on the word imposter and every single bond i um speak about and this topic specifically saying you don't have imposter syndrome and one thing i really want to highlight is you don't have imposter syndrome because the world has asked you to impersonate a specific ideal. And that is what's happening. Of course, you're going to feel like an imposter if you're impersonating somebody else, if you're trying to embody somebody else's values and ways of thinking and culture and philosophy. So no wonder we all feel fake. It's because the world is telling us to literally be a mimic, to impersonate somebody else. So you're not an imposter because you are a fraud. You are an imposter because the world is telling you to impersonate something that you were never meant to impersonate. 
but whether it's in leadership to impersonate what a leader is, just we always talk about male, extroverted, um, you know, a specific kind of authority. And now you have to feel like you have to impersonate that. You have to wear it until it feels comfortable. And there's, again, there's nuance there. There's definitely a little bit of a part of, you know, practicing your confidence is faking it until you make it. But not being fake until you make it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's it's something completely different. And so now you feel like you feel like an imposter as a leader because you are trying to fill shoes that will never ever fit you. And so that feeling just grows and grows. And if you're not confident in your leadership in this example, it leads to self-sabotaging behaviors. It leads to not asking for help. So now you are undermining your ability to be a leader because you're trying so hard to impersonate something. And then it feeds more into the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome says, look, look how you're feeling as a leader when really the question is you've never defined how you want to lead yeah and it's it's that feeling of when you show up in rooms and spaces that were never designed or built for people who look and sound like you to thrive and flourish in of course you're going to feel like an imposter because you actually are one like this is not you know I think leadership is a really powerful context to think about so many of the like let's think about corporate america you know so many of those environments were designed by and for one very specific social group and if you don't fit that group you are going to feel like an outsider you're going to feel like like an imposter what i witnessed from women in the bonds is that that reframe can be extremely liberating as much as it's infuriating and actually deeply sad. It is also liberating when you can see the bigger picture. And the other thing I think happens a lot is the confusion between imposter syndrome and self-doubt. Um, a hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent agree with that. Uh, another thing I often talk about is that um, failure is not equitable. Right. And so some of you might say, I've I've tried showing up as I am and it just did not feel like it was good enough. And oftentimes it's because we just don't have the same room to fail as others where self-doubt equals to failure versus self-doubt is just part of the process, right? Like normalizing self-doubt for women and black and brown people. There's a level of um, surety that we have to live with right um to say this is worth taking the effort this is worth taking the chance and we don't have time to um practice self-doubt because everybody else is doubting us already and so it just feels like we can't even have a healthy relationship with our own doubt because we're constantly being doubted and then now your self-doubt which i think is a part of everybody's process is now like it intermingles with the doubt that the world places on you. And now you're just like in a doubt soup where self-doubt is normal. Self-doubt is not invalidating. And I think that's what a lot of us are looking for is, is validation. And we have not been cradled in a, you know, bassinet of validation the same way men have, the same way, you know, white men have, the same way even some white women have, especially I speak as a, as a black woman, where Everything from TVs to movies is telling you you can do it. You can go, girl, right? Whereas that's just not available for me. The reflections and what's possible is just not 
available for me. And, and when I do step up on my gifts, I feel like I need to be validated. I feel like I need to have that sign off from those who are in power. And I'm learning to deconstruct that, especially as, you know, a strategist needing to feel like I had to compete with like, you know, the tech business whiteboard bros um, and, and learn how to validate myself and learn how to find people who are worthy of speaking into my validation as well, right? Because again, we're not trying to create a reality where you can believe it all by your uh, by yourself. Like you don't need anybody else. Your own thoughts is enough to validate you. It's so important to work on self validation, but at the same time, community matters, right? You, what your friends say, what your what your parents might say, what your loved ones might say, they go a long way to helping to validate you, and so. Part of our job at, at Upfront is to be that validating community until you can build, um, until your self-image and self-efficacy gets built enough where you don't need us. We were just a pathway for you to see what we already see. And I think that's the difference of like validation in community and state validation is it doesn't become dependent on us. We're just a tool for your own perception of your own self. And I think that's when there is a consequence of confidence and we see it so often in the bonds that actually people will outgrow friendships and relationships. And really quickly they realise if I want to grow and I want to stretch myself and push myself out of my comfort zone, and sometimes that means being and showing up in the world in a way that is different from how your parents showed up or how your friends from school showed up or how your partner shows up or, you know, the people who have who love you and have known you for a long time. And I think, you know, we don't talk about that enough and that that can be a really painful, tense process to go through. And I think that's when it's another moment where the community element of the bond really steps up and really meets that moment of even though for most of us we've never even been in the same room together I am a hundred percent standing shoulder to shoulder beside you right now and giving you that validation and encouraging this growth in a way that some people who have known you your whole life just can't do a hundred percent and I and I also think along with growth the ability to the freedom to grow or possibly feeling like you're grow- outgrowing some people in your life is the ability to be dynamic and, com- and com- complex as a person. And I think that is the crux of intersectionality in this conversation because I am not able to be the multiple versions of me in so many environments. And so somebody might say, because you're a mother, it somehow invalidates your ability to be a leader. Because I am, you know, Black, it invalidates me to be intelligent or well-spoken. Or there's all these things that happen where I feel like we don't get to be all the versions of ourselves. And so we often, I think part of imposter syndrome is sometimes you're just being the one version of yourself and that becomes your your public facing mass and so now this part that was this thing that's a part of you now becomes the only part of you and people don't know you and I think that also lends to imposter syndrome when you feel like you can't be known in your complexity when you feel like you can't be known um 
that anything else people might know know about you might invalidate you. And so that fear of being found out is is such an integral part of imposter syndrome where you feel like you are tricking people or you are a fraud and they're going to find you out because you're a human, dynamic, complex person because people don't like duality. They don't like what I always call the both-isms of life where I am, you know, an incredibly intelligent, well-spoken person, but I'm also from Brooklyn. I'm going to drop my G sometimes. I'm going to use Abonics. I'm going to use AAV. The, both of things, those things are a part of me. And I, I've made it my, I purposely speak in the way that I speak because I refuse to be put in a box the way I was growing up. I always had to feel like, again, I've talked about feel being the smart black girl. And even for my mother, she wanted so badly for people to see us differently that I couldn't speak a certain way. And I felt I had to um, code switch, which is a big part of imposter syndrome for a lot of black and brown people is the concept of code switching. If you don't know what code switching is, code switching is essentially you change your behavior, your language, your speech patterns when you're when you're in certain environments. So for somebody it might be greatly downplaying their accent. All of my black and brown people might know, like we call it a the aka telephone voice. When somebody calls you and you're like, Hi, yeah, that's so great. I'm so happy to hear that. And then you go back to your homies. That was crazy. She was tripping. Like, what are we talking about, right? Like, we feel like we can't speak that way because we're going to be looked at as less intelligent, less professional because of our speech patterns. And that's a whole other topic where it's like, I can't even speak the way that I, that I want to speak with my friends because... So now, of course, I feel like an imposter because I'm choosing to code switch in order to assimilate into this environment. And again, that's another um, part of the syndrome. I, I, I think we should talk about imposter syndrome, not as what it does to us, but maybe imp imp maybe imposter syndrome is the disease and what we feel are just the symptoms, just the effects, right? The environments that say you can't speak a certain way because of your accent, the environments that produce this this type of syndrome, and then it just all inoculates us, you know? Yeah, listening to you talk about code switching and kind of hearing you talk aloud about the you know, how that feels in the moment and the, you know, switching between the two environments. It reminded me of a conversation I had with a neurodiverse person in our in our bond uh, who kind of leads up a mini bond that we have for neurodiverse bonders. And she was talking a lot about this idea of masking and having to really intentionally alter your behaviour, particularly at work, to fit in, in inverted commas, to avoid attention. And she was talking about, you know, the the mental load and the mm. kind of fatigue that that creates mm -hmm. just in a day-to-day -day getting through life is, is really quite significant. And when I look down that lens and then start thinking about imposter syndrome, it feels even more heavy. So these are just, I mean, just some of the ways that we are helping the folks in our community identify if what they're experiencing um, is imposter syndrome. And when we ask you to take, so before anybody starts a bond, whether it's a public bond or one of our corporate private bonds, we have them take an assessment. And this assessment is part of helping you identify 
how the concept of imposter syndrome shows up in your life. Whether you have it or not, it's the concept and your perception of it is still really powerful. So, Lauren, why, why is the imposter um, syndrome assessment that we do at the beginning of our bonds so important? And what are we looking for? What is the nuance that is in our assessment that is often not talked about? Yeah, and I think it's important in this conversation because essentially what you and I have just done is talked about all the ways that imposter syndrome potentially hinders progress, needs investigated. But the truth is there are, as you've said, it is still a helpful tool and there are things that are helpful about having that language as a benchmark and a kind of anchor. But the other thing that's important to know is really when it comes to academic, like thorough academic research around these ideas of confidence, imposter syndrome really is the best that we have so far in the world. Imposter syndrome is the best we have to understand this complex thing that we call confidence. So what we what we did is we looked at all that data, the research and the papers, and we focus in on there's a there's a piece of research called the Clance Imposter Syndrome Scale. And we broke that down into four subscales. And I'm going to tell you kind of what each of them are. So the first subscale is self-efficacy, which is really just a fancy word for confidence, right? So this is this is your belief in your capacity to execute the behaviors necessary to produce the thing you want to produce. So in the bond, it sounds like my voice is important. It deserves to be heard. I have been practicing confident behaviors. And now I believe that's true. Self-advocacy is the ability to advocate for yourself. It's the ability to communicate what you need and want, to make decisions about the support that you need to get to do the thing you want to get. So, for example, that might sound like, I now know how to ensure my hard work and accomplishments are going to lead to career progression. I now know how to take the initiative to communicate my needs and wants to others. Now, this might be a hard conversation with your partner about the fact that you're, the way that you're sharing household labour is inequitable, right through to asking for a pay rise in your corporate job. And... You mentioned corporate bonds and just a wee quick um, quick explanation of how that works. So, of course, we have our public bonds. We host one public bond a year. Bond six is on their last couple of weeks. They are flying high and being amazing. It's been such an incredible time with them. But we also host this very same experience that bond six are having, but it's closed for corporations. So our last client was Nike's design and innovation team. We also hosted a private bond for Lottie, the London Office of Technology and Innovation. And their cohort saw a 52% increase in self-advocacy in just six weeks. So that is an incredible stat that we are really, that we're really proud of. And we now have each of these 
subscales have the stats for every client we've ever worked with, for all of our B2B clients who enrol their teams on public bonds, and we're working to get to a place where when you sign up as an individual, you will also get this feedback so that you've got a really tailored recommendation of where you've progressed and what you do next. So the other area we measure is self-improvement, which is much more self-explanatory around I just know how I know how to get better. I know how to increase my knowledge and skills. So in the bond, that sounds like, you know, I want to keep growing, I want to keep learning, and I know what I need to do to get there. So that's an example of this the scales and how we think about it. And as as you say, Naj, we have everybody answer bunch of questions at the start of the six weeks and then the same questions at the end of the six weeks and that's where we get the really hard numerical data that shows the bond does transform your relationship with confidence drastically reduces your feelings around imposter syndrome and then in the bond itself and in the content in the course we have lots of what I would call confidence experiments that also show this progress, but in a much more kind of qualitative, community-driven way. For example, the bonders are encouraged to record themselves talking at the start and then again at the end. And that's very self-led. You know, we, we get hundreds of messages of people saying they're just absolutely blown away by how different they are showing up on this camera just to tell us what they had for breakfast you know this is not about giving a Nobel Peace Prize speech it's simply showing up as yourself on camera and talking to an audience yeah with with all of that and if you ever if you join a bond you'll see all the questions and all the things that we use to kind of pry into your head and your heart and your life to figure out because sometimes you don't know you don't know that you don't feel this way you don't know that you think this way and I think you know we love the numbers because we want to know that we're 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 doing our jobs and we want to give you something tangible to hold on to but before that before that it's just giving you an opportunity to to reflect on yourself when we talk about self-efficacy and I can't I say this over and over again there are a handful of things that I feel like saved my life that means it gave me honestly the will to live to thrive and to to keep going and self-efficacy is one of those things for me the biggest tool for my change is not that I changed it is that I believe that I could change. And if somebody were to ask me, what do you think is the opposite of imposter syndrome? In some ways it's confidence, but honestly, confidence is self-belief. All of these sub-scales, this imposter syndrome, everything we're talking about is we want you to learn how to trust yourself and to believe in yourself and it is so astounding how many of us don't trust ourselves. We can't even talk about self-love because we can't trust ourselves. How many of us love somebody that we can't trust, you know, um, at least a healthy love? And oftentimes before we can get into, you know, what change looks like, asking for that raise, any of that stuff is, is, is trusting yourself to say, I, I finish what I start. I can be courageous. I can hop on that video. It's we're, we're we're giving you an evidence to go against the voices that are telling you no and that you can't and that play and that play small and all of these experiments is about building this really stacked trophy case for yourself that says 
no, things are different. And here's this very small example of why it's different. And if you want to defeat imposter syndrome, whether you have it or whether it it's still affecting you, it's working on that self-trust and that self-belief. And that truly is what helps you break through to the kind of confidence we think and we know not only activates you, but activates your community. 100%. Maybe we can both share like something small and maybe quite recent where we have learned to trust ourselves in a new context or a new capacity. Spicy. I don't know if this is recent and more... It's less recent and more ongoing. My uh, ability to make friends. Friendship has always been, for a lot of my um, life into being a young adult, friendship was like one of the areas of heart where like I experienced the most heartbreak more so than any kind of romantic entanglement like friends have broken my heart over and over again and so i clawed my way out of a hole out of more door into a place where i felt like i knew how to make friends i knew how to be a friend and then the pandemic happened and within the within the pandemic it changed everything like friends leaving and changed the place where I, where I had community church-wise, I, I was not seeing people. And it's not, this conversation isn't about like, oh, I believe that I can have friends. My belief that I can put myself out there and be uncomfortable and experience discomfort and not let it make me relapse into thoughts of being and feeling unlovable, that is where self-efficacy and self-belief has come to say, I am strong enough. I remember telling Lauren, I lost all my people calluses. My ability just to like be around people and experiment, I was like an exposed nerve. Everything hurt my feelings. And to believe that in myself that I am more resilient, that I can be more restful when pursuing friendships, which is a big thing for me. I don't want to try to find friends and feel like a chicken running around with her head cut off and feeling like I was pretending to be all these types of people and be like to believe that I can be restful, I can be patient with myself in the process, I can be grace-filled with other people. All of that came from a self-belief that I was strong enough, that I was open-hearted enough, that I had developed enough coping mechanisms to deal with rejection. So it wasn't just a belief of a perfect situation or a perfect process, but when you have enough self-belief to commit to an imperfect process, I cannot tell you what that opens up in your life. Because now what happens is your value is not about the result. It's not, this was worth it because this it worked out. Your value is your ability to try. And so now you live life with so many less regrets because your self-belief generates these core values and manifests in these actions that make you really proud 
of being a person who tries. And so I love that I try. I love that I'm like a kid at the playground and I said, I choose you, let's be friends. I love that I'm open-hearted. I love that I skip a couple of friendship steps and I'm like, do you want to be best friends? And uh, I'm, I love that self about myself, you know what I mean? And it's one of my favorite things about me to live that open-hearted in this world and I wouldn't have been able to do that without a deep belief that I can recover from when it doesn't work out. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about this idea of trying because my partner actually said to me in a recent conversation because obviously he's now joined our team as our CEO since <laughs> since maybe January. So not only do we live together, parent together, love together, we now officially work together. And he said something along the lines of that he is in awe of how hard I try. And I think you texted me this at the start of the week. And I love that about me too. It's like I am, and I think I'm learning to try more on my terms. I think maybe when I look back at my past, the trying was coming from a place of I need I need to prove this thing. I need to show I can do this thing, achieve this thing, whatever it might be. And now it's coming from a place of I'm doing it for me. Like I'm doing it for me, for my team, for our mission, for things that I know will bring more joy, positivity, power, wealth, whatever that might look like to lots of people. Like it feels much more expansive. That's the word that I'm thinking thinking of. It's trying in a way that feels expansive rather than depleting and exhausting. If I think about that thing that's really present in my life at the moment around learning to trust myself, I, I think it really does have to be this. It has to be up front. You know, it's only... I got a memory on my Instagram today it was two years ago today that I announced Bond One and it was just me, nobody else. And I had a full-time job running another business. Mm. So in two years, we've grown this incredible team. We've built this incredible product, thousands of graduates, amazing impact. And I only went full-time, of course, kind of halfway through that. And I think that move to go full-time was a huge process of learning to trust myself. The reason that it took me six years was because I didn't didn't trust myself. And I know I've got another upfront moment on that. If you're curious, you know, you can, you can go and check it out. And now I feel that my future will just be lots of micro, micro moments of levelling up in leadership and trusting myself that I will keep asking for help when I need it, that I will make mistakes, but I will recover from them, and I will give myself and others grace, that I will find collaborators like you 
who make me smarter and make our business better. For a long time, I didn't believe that. We've talked about this a lot. Like I had fully convinced myself because of the damage and toxicity that has come from previous kind of co-founding relationships I've had with other women. So that's been a big part of trusting myself to to make those relationships and to build that foundation and to be the leader that I know I am and I will continue to be. You know, there's even something in me being like, ah, it still feels a bit like, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I want to I add to that to what Lauren said. I want to say two things. A, do not pause, click off, because you hear Lauren said, you know, two years she went full-time with Upfront. This is after 15 years of trying, of her writing and showing up and it still took her six years to um you know come to a place where she can be full-time with upfront so that's the first thing i want to say the second thing i want to say and give you a little little preview into lauren and why we speak so much about self-belief efficacy and positive syndrome and leadership one of lauren's core fears was the fear that she couldn't grow an impactful scalable amazing purpose-driven business without turning into a monster it was a big fear because we see the people who succeed and they're not always the kindest they're not always you know and Lauren was so afraid that she would have to exchange something in order to find that success and it's something I completely understand and learning to trust herself and say, I can be good and great has been really, really cool to, to watch. And um, part of that is, again, staying curious, trying. I think trying is so sexy. I think being earnest is sexy. I think wearing your heart on your sleeve, sh- sharing a little bit too much, being a little bit, you know, I think all of that is severely undervalued in our society so yeah i if, if, i don't know if any of y'all have experienced this this fear of in order to become who i need to be i need to let let down a core part of me i need to leave be- behind my goodness well we're changing that narrative to say you can be good and great and i actually feel like it's going the other way like both things are growing and bettering We should give the folks their challenge, their upfront challenge on our last episode of the season. So the challenge that we that we want to give you is pinned to this notion of imposter syndrome. And we want you to think about the ways that you're showing up in a bid to legitimise yourself that actually is taking away your power. Do you want to give us some examples, Naj? The ways that we show up to legitimize ourselves. I think there's so many ways. I think there's so many things we can do. A quick example is saying yes to too many things at work. And it's stealing rest from you, time with loved ones, in a world that is fraught with a lot of heartbreaking things in order to show your boss why you deserve to be here. And um, living from a place of anxiety. I think it could be things like me going on the first day trying to be the cool girl for too long and I just give this whole speech about trying and earnestness but then I used to go out on dates and I used to eat with only one hand 
I thought I was, I thought I was being so delicate, um, and not fully being my own self. And so now this person is not getting to know me and whether it works out or not, the result is based on a version of myself that, that I'm not actually being, um, or the ways that you delegitimize yourself, whether it's not applying for that job, whether it's um, not having that conversation with that friend, all of those things, we, we want you to take a look at it. Yeah. And write to us. You can write at lauren at weareupfront.com. We read all your messages. We would love to know what you're taking away from this moment, but also how has the podcast been? I think we've got... 15 episodes, our very first podcast, first season. We are so grateful. I'm so happy you're here. And we will be back on the 19th of September. So thank you for being here. Have an awesome summer. And we will see you in September. Spicy. Spicy. (laughs) I'm not saying I deserve an award. But I'm not not saying I don't deserve an award. <laughs> it's being up front, baby. Yeah.